Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Good Saturday morning to you, internets. This is, of course, the Polycast, and I am one of your regular hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. One of these days, I'm going to remember to unmute the bot before we start. Makalua. There are 24 hours of room, room, but it's August. I'm confused. And a returning guest co-host, the Chris D. Not been cheating on Siv, I swear. <laughs> no, that wasn't Humankind. He was playing. No. We definitely haven't seen the stream. No, totally. Of course not. I saw about 30 seconds of it. Looks about the same, doesn't it? It looks similar, but it's clearly not. No, not really. I was watching a different Irishman playing last night, and Mom had come in there and looked at the... Is that Sif? And I was like, face palm, oh my gosh. How do I explain this? <laughs> like it is, and it isn't. Yes, I promise I'm not here just to cheat on Civ. And even though we are originally a Civilization podcast, we can't not mention the elephant in the room. Is that Amplitude Studios and published by Sega, Humankind released on the Tuesday before we record this episode. And I seem to be the only one who has given it a go, thanks to it being free on Game Pass PC, yay. Oh no, I was up till like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning every uh, night this past week playing as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> I've mostly been watching other people play it so far, and I'm like, oh, do I want to get it? Yeah, da, 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 da. I really wanted to get into the uh, the open betas that they had, but like every time I heard that one was happening, it was like already past the time where uh, you could sign up or register for it, and I was like, don't. Or you don't hear about it until Sunday. <laughs> it's the same way it was. When you could get a basic key off of Twitch by watching other people on Twitch, but then you, again, you kind of figured out, oh, hey, I can do that. Oh, it ends in two days took me longer to download it than I could play it, right? Or is it like Civ and only 10 megabytes or gigabytes? It's not that bad if I check my Xbox app. It was 27 gig. Oh, so it's double the size of Civ, but that's to be expected. It is five years newer. But still half the size of most of the games that are installed on my PS4. And, you know, then of course there's stuff like Red Dead Redemption 2 that's like 120 gigs. Not get into Call of Duty Warzone. That's about two hundred. It's on oh my the gosh. low end from it's on the low end for modern games that aren't like small indie projects. Yeah, the size of of those uh, like Assassin's Creed and Call of Duty and even games like Madden is just unbelievable. Because like you gotta freaking install reinstall those things every dang year when they come out with the new uh, iteration. Also, public service announcement: Don't buy Madden on PC. It's not new. <laughs> well, it never is. No, I mean, it's literally not even the next generation graphics yet. Oh, oh my goodness, yeah. It's wow. last year's game with a new roster. 
That's, that's how these yearly ones work. But hey, they make, uh, what is it, $800 billion a year from Ultimate Team, so, you know, don't have to put that much effort in. I thought that was EA and FIFA. I think it's combined. Scary. But anyway. I was going to say, the one multiplayer stream I've seen, it worked pretty good for a long time before they started having some problems, but I don't know if that's just the servers were getting overloaded, because this was probably... It's either Wednesday or Thursday, so it was still pretty soon afterwards, and it was prime time in Europe when they were playing, so. But it seems to recover okay afterwards when you you do have to go out and reload once you start desyncing, but it recovered, it seemed to recover better as they played on. Like they would get, once the few server issues raffled out or ruffled out over a couple of reloads, but then it was fine for like a long stretch, and nobody was getting that thing where. Like we do on the Civ multiplayer, where somebody desyncs for the rest of the game every turn. The multiplayer is interesting because they have this thing where you can create like an avatar leader character, and you can set, uh, actually create like a limited uh, AI for them, where you give them like preferences and traits, and you can, I guess, share that with other players. So you can like play asynchronous multiplayer with your friends as well, which is uh, kind of a neat idea. You can indeed. I think I checked the. Games Together database yesterday, and there's about um, thirty-five thousand persona I uploaded. So you Quite could definitely few. you could definitely download some people and play against, or at least play against what they would intend to be themselves. Yeah, spares amplitude from all the uh, development time of having to create new leaders the way that uh, poor Forexus always has to. Just let the uh, people do it. That is the handy thing about the, um, the cultures, though, and that they are, in essence, because they're so limited, they don't really have to. I mean, they don't have to add too much to us. Like, they add one unique district, one unique unit, and a unique effect for everything. That's pretty much it. Well, it's still pretty much on par with, uh, you know, what's offered in a, a civilization leader and civ. It's just a lot simpler. Uh, but, you know, you still have a unique ability. Uh, you still have a unique infrastructure and a unique unit. But what's neat yeah. is you get a new one every era. And there's different combinations of things, and as they go on, if they do expansions and things, they can add more cultures in, which gives even more combinations. And they're also not having to dig through history for a leader to match a culture. Yeah, what is it? It's something like uh, ten cultures for each era right now, and there's, I want to say, seven, six or seven eras. So we're talking like 60 or 70 cultures. Am I, is that correct? Did anyone count them? There are there's definitely six choosable eras at like somewhere around the eight, nine, ten mark, I think, for cultures per era. Basically enough to enough for a max competitor count game right now. Because you can currently have at most ten players on the largest map size. Right. So, oh, yeah. you know, not entirely skimpy on content. You know, there's a fairly broad selection of uh of cultures here. Mm-hmm. You can even do some interesting changes, such as starting as you know, the Chinese and becoming English, and finally becoming Zulu and then Brazilian. Yeah, that's the one thing that's kind of jarring for me about it is uh, having to get over my uh, my own like kind of ingrained personal bias that the, the culture should be like similar to each other, like historically. It's kind of weird for me to be like you know, the Romans one era and, like, the Chinese the next era and then the Aztec. Well, I guess humankind is leaning hard into the alternate history type thing. Like, what if these, what if these people evolved in a different way in their society? They'd be 
you know, the Romans go into being something else, you know. Yeah, and that's definitely a very neat approach because, you know, it's always been a criticism of Civ that Civ doesn't really, like, model the idea that cultures change over time considerably, mm-hmm. sometimes even to the point where, you know, they might be unrecognizable from, like, a thousand years ago, but they're still, uh, you know, a continuous... Uh, uh, stream of, of, you know, authority and, and government and law and stuff like that and culture that leads, uh, gradually from one to another. And Civ's always been more of like, oh, these cultures are monolithic and they exist forever until all their cities are wiped out or they win the game. Yeah, like the French are always, uh, the modern French kind of culture, at least within the past, you know, few hundred years, but they started out in real life as the Gauls and slowly evolved into that. But it's like you have the modern French from whatever BC all the way until the space age. It's like, hmm? Right, and humankind even models some of that stuff because you have like a medieval English culture, you know, with like uh, the longbow or whatever as their unique unit. And then later in the industrial era, you have a uh, uh, imperial British culture that has, uh, I think it's the red coat is their unique unit, or maybe it was a naval unit, I forget. I'm not sure I'd ever selected them, but yeah, you can have there's the English become British later. There's the Franks earlier on, and then you have the modern French later. There are several instances of Chinese dynasties. There's a couple of instances of Japanese, I believe, as well. And there's actually two instances of quote Egyptians. Like they didn't even like change the name in the way they changed from English to British. It's just there's ancient Egyptians, and then there's uh, a modern Egyptians, and they have but they both have the same name. Yeah, that's the one jarring thing I did notice, but yeah, there is a distinct difference, obviously, between your ancient and your modern, or modern-day kind of, are they technically oh, yeah. Egyptians? But yeah, big difference in play style, big difference in, in outfits as well. But but I have to say, going from, like, the Romans to the Aztecs over the course of, like, <laughs> one turn might be jarring, but is it really any more jarring than, like, playing Civ Three and seeing Abraham Lincoln founding Washington, D.C. in 4000 B.C. while wearing his, uh really cool, stylish, bearskin top hat. Actually. And hey, for all you know, the Romans made an early discovery of the New World and said, hey, we like this Aztec culture. One of the interesting things, though, when you come towards the end of the game, you look back and you, re- and you realize all the city names that are in your empire and how you've picked them up from the different cultures as you've gone along. And also the uh, the infrastructure, too, because, you know, each era you're plopping down the, this different culture's unique buildings, and it leads to a, you know, like in Civ, you have, like, wonders and stuff like that, which will give a lot of variety to how your cities look. But in this game, it's just, like, uh, the basic unique districts uh, make your cities look a lot more interesting and unique and, and dynamic and uh, multicultural. Having a Dutch warehouse next to an Egyptian pyramid next to a Nubian pyramid. Yeah, I will have to say, though, that Wonders is one area where the game does feel a bit skimpy in content. There's only, I think, like four Wonders per era, and I think the last two eras only have three. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good ones that are missing. Like, I don't think the, the Great Wall of China is not there, the Terracotta Army's not there. There's uh, definitely not very many of them, though, but over there, I, I'm not sure if that's something that they can add over time, or if it's something that they'll focus on. Oh, I'm, I'm sure there will be. From I think my I, initial play, I don't really understand the purpose of them other than giving you static effects. Yeah, they just, they, they it's weird because they don't, they don't have like, they don't seem to have the, the unique like game-changing abilities that some of the Civ Wonders have. They just kind of feel like stronger, <clears throat> sorry, they just kind of feel like stronger districts. 
all I think they are for for the most part. I think apart from maybe one or two, I think. Uh, I feel like I think it was Angor Wasp, which was giving me like 120 food in the city because it was generating a lot of faith. But other than that, they just kind of stand there, give you a lot of stability. Some of them act as a holy site. It's pretty much it. But what's what's really interesting about the the wonders, uh, and I think they they have to make the wonders a little more unique and powerful in order for this to really be worth it. But you actually pay for them up front to claim them, and then once it's claimed, no one else can claim or build them. So it's not like Civ where you can be one or two turns away from finishing a wonder and you, that you already spent like 40 turns building and then all of a sudden someone else on the other side of the world finishes it and like all your production is moot. Like you have to buy it with essentially what is culture points. This game calls them, uh, I think, influence or prestige. Influence, right? It is influence, yeah. Yeah. It works, yeah, it works very similar to how influence was in some of the other endless games, of course. Right, but then once you claim it, then you actually have to build it. But the the catch here again, and so what's different from Civ, is that all of your cities can contribute production towards building the one wonder. So yeah, it might take seventy turns in the one city that you're placing it. But if you have you know three or four other cities and you all send them production, uh, you can bring that down to like twenty turns or less, depending on yeah. how productive your cities are. You uh, a few high production cities, you can chain them all into that, and it's done in the teens of turns or less, even sometimes. And the catch, of course, is that you can only have one wonder claimed at a time, and you can't claim another one until you finish building it. So you can't just race to be the first person into an era and like save up a bunch of uh, influence and just buy all the wonders of that era. You you got to build one of them first. It has been showing that the kind of like your. Balancing the resources of your generation seems to be a thing that's actually important. Like we all know in Civ Six, pretty much everyone was always we always had production as king. Whereas here, not so much. I mean, yes, production can still help, but you can't train units without population. Every unit costs you population. You need science to start advancing through the eras to help get you your stars. You need the influence to expand your territory and claim wonders and pass laws, all that sort of thing. Well, and you're not just building cities either and producing with them. You're also building the little outposts, which are like pre-cities, primitive cities, and that costs influence. And then anything that you build in those outposts also costs influence. So you, you are directly spending, again, this game's equivalent of culture points directly on building things uh, in the outposts. Well, yeah, there's a lot of usage for the influence, especially in the early game. It always feels like there's too much for it. Well, and influence is... Also spent on uh, patronizing uh, the minor civs, the, this game's equivalent of city-states. So, like, yeah, it does a lot of things. It's also yeah. spent for, for civics, uh, and, like, I feel like there's one or two other things that I'm forgetting. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's a, there's a, there are definitely several things, and it is. it almost feels like there's a little too much with regards to it early on. Oh, yeah. I found in my few games I've played that I really, if I don't crank out a lot of influence early, I'm pretty much stuck with maybe only a few territories and everyone else is like grabbing half the, half the continent. And it depends on the difficulty level too because the first game I played like with the my little learning game with the tutorial active I think was on the town difficulty setting which is their equivalent of uh, easy or, or chieftain in the context of Civ and I don't think I ever built an influence generating building the entire game but I had like so much of it I could just do whatever the heck I wanted with it whenever I wanted uh, by like midway through the game and uh, I was also doing a lot of uh, gold purchasing of units and uh, buildings in that too, which uh, showed that gold was also valuable. Mm. And yeah, you can also you need to focus. Oh, go ahead. 
No, you, yeah, you do need to focus on pretty much getting something of everything. You can't just hyper focus on one one area. Oh yeah, like I, I played a started another game, a couple of, of other games on the normal difficulty setting, and the the influence became a lot more important to invest in because I found myself not generating nearly as much and feeling very restricted in uh, what I could do. I actually had to wait and save up to you know claim the wonders that I wanted instead of just you know immediately opening up the list and being like, hmm, which wonder should I spend my thousand influence on this era? On the topic of being restricted, though. I- I don't know if it's just me. I given I, I I have played Endless Space and obviously lots of save over time, but I never played Endless Legends. So the, the the territory system to me feels a bit restrictive. So for those of you who haven't played this or Endless Legend, the the world is basically divided into territories that are preset shaped. Well, not preset shapes, but they're preset areas from the start of the game. There can only be one outpost slash city per territory, and they're quite large. They're about just like thirty, forty tiles or so, possibly more. They think they vary in size, but if you uh, if you ever played the um, the board game Civilization: A New Dawn, and you you remember what the the individual territory tiles look like, this reminds me a lot of that. They're also scaled up a heck of a lot more, though. <laughs> That's the main thing. Like, well, yeah. I mean, it's just personal opinion. Maybe it's just being a Civ player, but I almost feel like those territories could be like cut in half. I, I the do. Size of them could be cut in half. Well, I see what what I kind of like about the size of the territories. Uh, there, there's two things. One is it means that there's distance, more distance between cities. So you don't have the issue that you have in Civ Five and Civ Six, uh, in particular, where every city is like three or four tiles apart, and they're and like even by the medieval era, it's like complete urban sprawl, and there's like no countryside at all. It's just nothing but cities and districts. This actually ensures that at least until the end of the game. There is, like, empty countryside space in between most of the cities where you can have open field battles and not, you know, have your armies spilling over into adjacent cities. That can still happen depending on if, you know, the cities are being built uh, near, like, the edges of the respective territories and really close to each other. Uh, but for from my experience so far, there's a, there is a lot more space between cities. And then the second thing is later on in the game, I think it's in, like, the... Uh, the Renaissance the era, era, or they, they call it the uh, early modern era, uh, you can unlock something called a hamlet, which is like building like a second little satellite city in the same territory, and then you can start building districts around that as well. So the, the um, territories are big enough to basically allow you to plot two city center districts. Yes, that's something we haven't touched on. Districts in this game, and I think it's the same with Legends, you can't just build them anywhere unless... Apart from like maybe one or two that are very specialized, you have to, you have to build out from the city center towards your places. So you can't just be like, oh hey, look at all those mountains above the campus right there, with three tiles away from your city center. You have to actually build districts in a line to get there. Yeah, Even so you have to you don't get adjacency from mountains for the most part, but still. Yeah, so you do have to think ahead about where you place them because if you have like a strategic resource or whatever that generates science, and you want this game's equivalent of a campus district there, you got to make sure that you settle close enough that you can build districts to get there, but you also don't want to settle, like, right next to it, because I've noticed that apparently the the city center tile seems to change the adjacent uh, yields and removes, like, gold and science that's granted by resources, which I thought was kind of annoying, but maybe, I don't know if they have some reason for doing that. It's a weird thing. So city centers and hamlets only exploit food and industry. Which is the game's production. They don't exploit money and they don't exploit science on their own. 
It's, that's what, the other reason you have to build those districts of those type because it, exploit, it exploits the resource from those tiles and the ones around it. Again, another difference, your population does not work the land. Your population only works slots in the cities. Everything that's on the land, if you have a, if you have a district near it or around it, it's just worked automatically, you get the points. Right, which means you can get a lot of yields. And on top of yeah. that, you, ha- you can have your city also annex adjacent outposts and then get the yield from that territory as well. It's like merging two cities into one, but only having to build one set of improvements. Yeah. Whatever comes with a bit of a stability hit, and that's something I've found is a real pain in the early game. You really cannot build very many districts before your stability is gone. Yeah, and that was another thing where I, I think the learning game, the, the easy mode, kind of does the game a little bit of an injustice because a lot like influence, that was another thing that I was just a complete non-issue for me in, in my first game on the town difficulty, which was the default that they gave me for the tutorial. Uh, and I, I feel like it, it's su- both of those are such important things at the normal difficulty, and I presume every level above that, that it, I think it's a real shame that the uh, the tutorial and the town mode just so completely under-emphasizes and under-utilizes them. Yeah, it's very different to the population requirements in Civ. You can just keep building them, but then your city's going to start hating you for some reason, even though you've built so many farmers' quarters that you can you know feed everyone three times over for days. They're still going to complain about it for some reason. Something's never changed. No. Well, you played the game towards completion. I, I well, I did finish the uh, that that first learning game. Uh, the the game. So another thing that's kind of weird is the way that the game lengths work. Like unlike Civ, it doesn't seem like the game changes like the amount of time that each turn represents. If you play a quicker game, it just apparently means that the game ends earlier. So I played the the first game, which was on the normal game speed, which was like 350 turns or 300 turns or something like that. And it was the, the game was just ending, like hitting the turn limit in, you know, as all of the, the civilizations were entering the industrial era. Yeah, you've seen that. I mean, the first game I played, it wasn't in the tutorial, but I was in the contemporary era within oh, about 180 turns or something. Then even half the world kind of followed me not long after that. And yet the game was still saying, oh, it's only like 1300 AD. And I'm like, what? Yeah, humankind, at least in my experience so far, has that same problem that uh, Civ Five and Civ Six had, where the eras progress very quickly and very early. You know, I'll be hitting the classical era still in like 6000 BC and, you know, hitting the medieval era, you know, before 0 AD. Uh, so that still definitely has been happening so far. Yeah, I'm wondering if maybe they need to increase the era stars you need by an extra one. Yeah, we, maybe. We haven't even touched on that. The requirements to, in order to change your eras, you need to actually do things during each era. You can't just, you know, continually tech up and you'll immediately advance into the next era. You have to actually do things. Not only, not only learn or not only research technologies, you gotta build up, you gotta grow, either gotta, you gotta fight, you gotta, uh, make money, make influence, all of that. And depending on how much of that you get, you get certain era stars. And once you get seven, you can go up to the next era. At this it, stage, we might possibly need eight. It's uh, I, I would say for Civ Six players, it's kind of analogous to the era score mechanic. Whereas instead of earning era score to get a golden age, you have to earn that prerequisite era score in order to just advance to the next era. And you can't just focus it solely on one. You can only get a most and max three stars from one aspect. Right, which means you have to do like at least three different you know things in order to uh, advance because it requires seven. 
it helps with diversification for the most part. You can't just beeline it like uh, certain saves like um, Korea and Seowans and Science. But there's a there's a lot of them that you're you're just gonna kind of get just by playing the game anyway. Like I think one of them is population growth, one of them is number of districts, and one of them is like technologies. And you're gonna just be growing in population and building districts and researching techs, like you know, regardless. So though you're gonna get those eventually. Yeah, the end game is um. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's just me, or maybe it's because I went through it too, or I went through it too quickly. But I think the end game feels a bit, bit of a limp wrist, obviously. Yeah, I don't really feel too quickly, but yeah, yeah. Having only played the end game on the easy difficulty so far, in which influence and stability were complete non-issues for me, and the AI was like not competitive at all. uh, I I don't feel qualified to judge how the end game plays quite yet. Yeah, it might not necessarily be there. Yes, I think based on the current release, it is very similar to to shall we say how we kind of um, how we felt Civ 6 was when it first released, it might take a few months of updates and some minor additions before it becomes, you know, the proper game. Kind of like how how it was when um, Rise and Fall came out for Civ 6, for instance. Yeah. yeah. It feels like most of the betas that they ran beforehand were concentrating, like, on the first half of the game, which is why that part is still very good right now, because it's been worked through, but they didn't have a lot of people going through to the end game. So, yeah, maybe the first expansion helps uh, co- not fix that, but make it better. I think there was at least one open dev that specifically uh, focused on the industrial era, but I don't mm. know if they had any that focused on the, the time after that, and I don't know how far into the later eras uh, that particular beta went, because that they were, I think, capped on the number of turns you could play, and then maybe yeah, also think- on like the number of hours that you could play. I think it was definitely turn. It was definitely turn slash era capped. In those um, yeah, you could only get up to a certain era, or you could only get up to like uh, I think one of the last ones was like a hundred turns. One of the less limited ones because the open, big open one, I think, was unlimited, but not everybody had the time to sink into it that at that point. Well, and especially if you only had like what a weekend to play it. Yeah. <laughs> at least we've had a week to have a look at it right now, or near enough to a week. Yeah. Yeah, the another uh, real big difference is the way that uh, units and military work. Uh, whereas uh, you know, Civ Five and Civ Six have the one unit per tile. Humankind has kind of this like it has a, a limited stack. It's got like a hybrid stacking model where you can stack a certain number of units into an army. I think at the beginning of the game, it's like four, and then as you research technologies, it goes up to five, and then later to six uh, later in the game. Uh, and then you, you move them all as a stack. So the annoying unit micromanagement of Civ Five and Civ Six is, you know, pretty much gone, where you're not having to, you know, move large armies of like 10 units, like one friggin' turn at a time, because they're constantly interrupting each other's movement, because they're overlapping the same tiles. Uh, so that problem is thankfully pretty much gone. And so what happens is when your army meets another army out in the field, then they kind of separate the units uh onto the terrain and like you have your battle and the whole battle happens in the one campaign turn uh you so you get to play multiple rounds of combat in the one turn in the campaign which is uh another big difference from Civ you don't have those single battles that stretch on for hundreds of years yeah from what i see each each basic battle just out in the wild between two armies you get three rounds of combat firstly 
when you when it goes into a battle, it basically expands the battle into its own layer. You have deployment, and that's where terrain and all that can actually matter. But it is still the battle you're on. Yeah, but it is still at the same scale as you know the campaign game. It's yeah, not it's like same, yeah. it's not like you're playing on a different map because you know there's other games, you know, that strategy games that I played in the past where there's like a whole separate. Uh, combat battle map that you go on to and, and it's not like that it's basically just the stack breaks up into the constituent units you know on those the nearby tiles and then just kind of similar to total war you have a round where you get to deploy the units and place where you want them before the actual battle starts yeah and then there's lots of other effects such as you know range units actually have quite a bit of range because because once it's deployed, you're essentially shooting, you know, over maybe a little forest, like your archers are, for instance. And then your cavalry can obviously run in, run around a forest and hit and, and hit enemy units from behind, for example. But yeah, think, I think think of think of the kind of layer they fight on, like the the satellite layer from Zip Beyond Earth. But I think uh, you were saying that it felt very constrained or claustrophobic, and I think a big part of that is because of the way that the terrain elevations work. Uh, there's hardly any space on this map that is just flat open field because there's always the hills and plateaus and cliffs. And in this game, there's cliffs, inland cliffs and plateaus, not just coastal cliffs, uh, which you cannot go directly up. You have to go all the way around, you know, and find another way up. Yeah, I think I read that. It was like every, every tile can have its own elevation level. And once there's two elevation levels of a difference, it becomes a cliff and you have to go around. Yeah, and there's something like four or five levels of elevation, I think. Oh yeah, you, you can like you can like essentially be looking from a giant plateau and like almost like you know it's like Uluru height and looking down on the ground underneath you. Yeah, Not or getting down from there though. Or if you build your city up on the top of that plateau, it's going to be very defensible, defensible because uh, uh, units aren't going to be able to climb those uh, cliffs and get to it. They're going to have to go around and fight through your units in other districts. Or if you've got one of those maps where there's like multiple levels of plateau and you're on the medium plateau and they can get on the high plateau and shoot at you right you have to be very careful about where you engage the enemy as well because if they have the high ground uh you are at a severe disadvantage because there's a substantial combat penalty for uh, melee units in particular for going up uh differences in elevation and i think there might also be a bonus for units going down in elevation. I don't remember if there were any bonuses or penalties for ranged units shooting up or down in elevation. I believe the melee combat's like a plus four up or down. I'm not sure I haven't actually really used much range combat. However, there is also the effect of, like, if you're in forest, you're also taking less damage from ranged units as well, so... Right, which was an interesting habit from Civ that I had to, like, get over, which was camping my units in forests, expecting to get a defensive bonus, and then forgetting that I think you only get the defensive bonus against ranged attacks when you're in a forest. If you want defensive bonuses against melee attacks, you gotta take the high ground. Or sit there and fortify for your turn instead of moving or attacking. Yeah, I did notice that, uh, that fortifying, like, was substantially, uh, different. Uh, substantially more powerful than I'm used to it being in Civ. Like, whenever, like, my scout would run into another Civ scout, and it was just our scouts fighting each other, I would just camp, and, like, I would just obliterate their scout. Because it's one of the problems with the AI, is uh, they currently seem to have this frustrating habit of just throwing units into fights against, you know, brick walls of defenders and just letting them die. Uh, generating grievances, and then you can demand money from them. 
Yeah, I, I guess that's one thing that maybe they're doing. But the thing is, if they attack you, you're the one who gets the grievances, not them. So it, it still, I don't think, helps them all yeah, that much. Yeah, you get the grievance, but then you can air that grievance with them and say, Oi, pay me for doing this. Right. And then either they can give it to you or they can say, not a hope, and then you either have to go to war or back down. And one of the other things that's interesting about the combat is uh, the defender actually gets like a little base camp flag thing on one of the backline uh, tiles, and the attacker doesn't have to kill all the defender's units. The attacker can actually win the battle by capturing their flag. And if the defender doesn't recapture the flag by the end of that three-round battle, then the attacker wins. So it's not just keeping your units alive, but you also have the extra element of having to protect a a specific tile, and sometimes that tile isn't the most defensible tile, and you just have to kind of sit there and camp and hope that you don't get slaughtered. I don't think you, you, you don't get to cities. choose where your camp is no. during the deployment, right? No, you don't get to choose. When it comes to deployment, you're basically told, here's the flag, here's your side, there's their side, deploy and fight. Yeah. So that was something that, uh, that tripped me up a few times early on, was... Uh, not thinking to defend my camp and then like a horse unit would just go around my units and, and park on it and then I'd have to fight him to take it back. You don't need to trip me up with city combat. At one point, I, my first time in city combat was a fair bit later in the game and it was only then I realized, oh, my units can't go into district tiles during a siege because apparently there's walls and you have to, and if you're if you're in the early game, you can sit there you can pre-siege a city and you'll automatically install some, you know, rudimentary siege weaponry, such as bashing rounds, ballistae, or trebs, everyone's favorite trebuchets. But once you get later on, you have to actually bring heavy weapons with you because you're no longer installing medieval, archaic siege weaponry. You gotta bring a mortar, you gotta bring a rocket artillery with you in order to break walls down, and then you can run in. And my recollection was, I think it's only the mounted units or the horse units that cannot go through the city walls. I think your regular melee units can attack into the city walls. Okay, you, good. you just get a substantial combat penalty for doing so. Okay, good, because my one instance was where I had basically just had six Teutonic Knights sieging a city. <laughs> and that yeah. happened oh crap, okay, uh, let's go spend all my money hiring some mortars. You do have to kind of watch out for elevation, though, because as I said, if, if there's if the that city wall is on or underneath a cliff, then you can't traverse that cliff. So you'd have you have to go around. So that might also be something that was blocking your uh, your movement into the city. Yeah, no, definitely. At the first part, it was a case of it, it, it's what happens when you go in and you don't look at the tutorial. You don't look at, you know, the wiki and get an idea of how to do it. You just go in and expect it to be kind of like Civ, where you just can charge the city, and even though there's walls there, you'll still eventually do enough damage. No, here, if you have walls, that's it. You're stopped until you get rid of them. But the walls don't get to bombard on their own. So no, they don't they're... get to bombard back. Only the units that are present in the city, or whenever you're attacking a city, there it'll spawn some, essentially some armed civilians from the city will spawn to help defend. Yeah, and, and they're... Also attempt to fight. And they're not much better than, like, a scout, so... No, they're not I... really. I think, at best, they're maybe half to two-thirds the strength of a relatively kind of basic basic land infantry unit, I, for instance. I think that in the, the early eras, the levy is the same strength as a scout. Which is not great. No. A scout is about as strong as a bear, apparently. But they do get, I think, one for each population. It's either one on each district or one for each point of population. Uh, and I, I don't... District. And I don't no. know if, uh, if killing those levies actually reduces the city's population. That's something I haven't paid close attention to yet. 
Never checked. It would have to be per district, because if it was per population, then you'd go into my capital city and suddenly I'd spawn 60 defensive units, for instance. So I think it'd have to be per district, or even based on a limited amount of districts at best, I would say. Or maybe it is based on population, but it's capped by the number of districts, because each one spawns in a district. So if you have 10 population and only 5 districts, then there's nowhere to put those extra 5 levies. But, like I said, I don't know. I haven't uh, experimented with it much yet. Yeah, there's, there's still a lot that we're going to have to look through and uh, give it a go over time. But sure, we'll pick up nuances as we uh, as we experiment more, shall we say. Yeah, but it is definitely interesting uh, having the units require city population. Because that has been serving as a very substantial deterrent to me, uh, especially in the first half of the game, to building units. Because it's like, oh man, I would really like to have some, you know, armies defending all of my cities from these potentially aggressive neighbors while I want to go and conquer these city-states on the other side of the continent. But I really also want that population so that I can actually be getting production from them. It's definitely give or take. You need the, you need the population to make the units, you also need the population to work as your specialists. However, you can also have too much population for the slots you have, so you may as well make units, but there's other times you don't want to make units because you want to make infrastructure and districts, and it's kind of, yeah, it's... And you can also disband your military units in the cities in order to recover that population. So, you know, one thing you can do, especially at the beginning of the game, if you end up getting a crap ton of scouts during the uh, the Neolithic era, which is also another thing that's different, which we should talk about. But anyway, if you get a bunch of scouts... You can send those scouts that you're not using back to your cities and just disband them for population or uh, convert them into like an archer or a warrior or a spearman or something like that once those are unlocked. I think by default they upgrade to horses, but yeah, if you disband them into the city and then you can reproduce a new unit. Well, that, yeah, that's what I meant is you disband them yeah. and then build a more powerful actual military unit that you, you know is going to be more useful. Well, for people that wanted a little more realism, hey, you can't make an army without the people to make the army in this case. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. That's why I was always going on about growth is kind of something you need to focus on as well as just production. But yes, we'll, t- we'll turn the thing around entirely. The Neolithic era, the, the pre-game era, shall we say. It's definitely something that's um, very different because you don't get it in save. In save, you start with your settler, you start with your warrior, and that's it. You just settle and go ahead. Yeah, the question of whether to explore on the first turn or settle on the first turn is uh, answered conclusively by the developers. Yeah, you explore because you have to. But it's great because there's a lot of times if you settle first turn in Civ and then a couple turns later when your scouts go out, you're like, oh man, if I was just a couple tiles over this movement, this amazing city. Yeah, there's like a... Go ahead. Yeah, so so you have the time with the Neolithic era to go and explore and find like the best or a good central location for your main capital city and where you're going to put things later, but also to build up a little bit extra before you actually settle. Yeah, you don't get that issue where you settle on the first turn and then, you know, on the second turn, move your scout out and realize, oh, crap, there was a natural wonder, like just outside the yeah. fog of war. Or, hey, yeah. look, there's that coastal tile that I really wanted. Just right outside the fog of war. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You start with your single tribe, and you're you're aiming basically not only exploring, but also to find food. You know, random food in the wild, or kill lots of wild animals in order to expand, so you can spread out more, explore more, find more things, find the good territories, figure out what would be a good spot to drop your initial outposts. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a very brief kind of small era of discovery. It's about what would you say about ten to fifteen turns, maybe. I mean, it, it depends because you can, you know, delay 
starting the ancient era if you want to explore a little bit more. But I, I so far, I'm not really sure why you would do that. It doesn't seem to be particularly advantageous. But I, I actually do wish that the Neolithic era lasted longer because it is kind of neat just having a bunch of units exploring around and not having to, uh, you know, ha- not having the cities to manage. Yeah, I think, I think as far as I know, the only reason you'd want to delay us is either you know there's still more kind of food discoveries around that you can pick up in order to make a couple more units, because uh, once you do go into the ancient era, all of your, yeah, once you go into the ancient era, all of your tribes that you have become scouts, and then you can put them back into the city and disband them for population or continue to explore. The only other reason you'd want to delay it is, I think, if you find enough scientific discoveries during the exploration era, you can get a legacy boost that basically affects your, you for the entire rest of the game. It's very minor, it's either... I think you, you can choose to either get a uh, food per population, industry per population, or a science per population. It's relatively minor, but that's the only real lasting legacy you have from the Neolithic era. But yeah, it is like just long enough to get a really good lay of the land, and then it, you know it's, it's time to start building cities. Yeah, and not long enough that you kind of get a little annoyed and bored of us, like in the Civ 4 Caveman's Cosmos. But yeah, ultimately, I think it's been a decent... A decent game will need updates and possibly expansions down the line, but for something that basically you could get day one free on Game Pass, decent enough. Yeah, and there's some UI issues that could be uh, fixed. Uh, for example, the the button to select a cultural wonder is like kind of hidden in one particular panel. It's not just you, it doesn't just show up in the build queue for cities. And I played through almost the entire uh, my entire first learning game without ever knowing that that button was there. And so, like, didn't build any wonders at all until the second half of the game, because I didn't know where... I didn't know how to do it. I've also found an issue in one of my more recent games where I've basically been soft-locked, because my religion got to the point where it's like, here, select a religious tenant. Oh, all the tenants are already taken. Can I just skip it? No, you must select a tenant before you can proceed. I've had a couple soft-locks during battles where it's the AI's turn and they just don't do anything. And they just sit there forever, not moving or attacking any units. Yeah, there are definitely obviously some bugs that probably haven't been found. Obviously, now that there's more people playing, these are probably more easily discoverable and be sorted out in the first bug fix release whenever that's going to come. I mean, I think they've already put out a couple of patches for some major locks and some major crashes. But I think like the first, the first polish pass, the first couple of polish passes. But then we'll see how the game is and. But my my initial impression is uh, I I think it's a much better vanilla release than Civilization V was at launch. Uh, Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. I don't know if if I'd say it's better than Civ VI at launch, but definitely better than Civ V. Being better than Civ V at launch is definitely not that big a thing to do. Civ V was terrible. Yeah. It really took like six to eight months of post-release patches and, and content additions before Civ Five was really the game that it was meant to be. I, I think 2K just pushed it out the door too soon and it wasn't ready. They had a bad design. Yeah, well, let's also bear in mind that Humankind has been pushed back. It was originally supposed to be in March this year, was it? And it got pushed back to this point here in mid-August. Yeah, and of course it, it is, you know... Amplitude did have iteration with this because they did do Endless Legend, which has a lot of very similar concepts in it. And it's all come from Endless Space, which I think we spent a fair bit of time in as well. But 
anyway, uh, or I think we have, it's time to start <laughs> yeah. talking about actual civilization now. <laughs> yeah, before we turn into humankind cast accidentally on purpose. <laughs> there's it's two okay. new. Yeah, well, there's two news things. One is Aspire has tweeted out that uh, they have a free update for all the Civ Six iOS players that goes out on the 24th, which will probably just just in a few days. That's Tuesday. It's coming Tuesday. Uh, they're going to have cl- <clears throat> introduced the cross-platform cloud saves to the iOS version, so the people who own it on multiple platforms, they can switch their files in between devices. And everybody... And then there's the PC... There uh, was an article post on PC Games N, but because there's a job posting it for Raxis for an upcoming AAA strategy title, and one of the qualities they're looking for is someone who has a knowledge and passion for world history. Like, hmm, does this sound like so? Well, what's I mean, interesting about that post, though, is that the listing is for something called a narrative lead, which uh, is something that's kind of d- does have yeah. me a little curious because, like, are they looking to make some kind of like story based game, or is like, or, or does the narrative mean something else at Firaxis Studios? Yeah, I was wondering if they were going to try and do more, like, when you transition between eras and things in humankind, and it has that little bit of narration, are they trying to set a story going through a sieve, or are they going to put more scenario-ish things and actually have narration or something like that? I was wondering, possibly, they might even attempt to expand each of the civilizations over the course of the game, so that, you know, in certain eras, your sieve is slightly more powerful through through, through narrative effects, through something that's historical, for instance. Yeah, and actually Humankind has quite a bit of that. They have those little dialogues that pop up that give you, like, choices, that give you, you know, permanent buffs or debuffs over the course of the game. And uh, other strategy games, like Total War has done stuff like that. Uh, the Paradox games, you know, Crusader Kings does that all the time. Like, every turn, you've got almost a, yeah, a stack of windows sure. where you got to resolve some, <laughs> some issue or conflict that comes up. Beyond Earth that too. Yeah, random events in Civ 4 and Beyond Earth. Oh yeah, that's right. Beyond Earth did have it, so it has been in Civ as well. Also, iOS gets iOS gets um, New Frontier Pass on the 24th as well. Ah, didn't I see that before. But anyway, uh, anyway, the, uh, the PC Games N article is saying the role will require a candidate who understands ways to tell stories within the structure of strategy games and who is, quote, driven to find new ways of storytelling within our genre, unquote. So that, that's something that could potentially be uh, exciting, possibly moving the genre forward. So maybe Civ 7 will be a dramatic departure from uh, Civ 6, or maybe this is a different historical strategy game altogether. Yeah, Maybe. and it does, it does show at the, there also that they want someone with a uh, strong writing experience, so they want a proper writer on board, not just what they're making up themselves as they go. Yeah, and I'm imagining that's not just for writing, like, Civilopedia entries. It sounds yeah. like it's actually for writing game scenarios and, yes. and stuff like that. So it could also be maybe they're going, maybe they're planning something that's more in the direction of, uh, what is it, Old World? where maybe it has a more limited scope and has, like, more potential for there to be, like, actual characters and, you know, little storylines and plots and intrigues going on. Possibly. Yeah. I think there's supposed to be some kind of announcements coming up soon about 
the games they're working on at like a, a conference or something, but I, I forget what conference it is because I don't really pay that much attention to these things anymore. We're, we're, we're getting to the stage where we don't really pay attention much, that much attention to news, shall we say? Yeah. Well, we had a whole year of all Civ news, and now we're not getting much, so. Yeah, just rumors and hearsay and speculation. To be expected. This is the internet, after all. But that doesn't mean we won't have a shortage of things to talk about, because we do have uh, the aforementioned uh, Humankind, and at some point, I assume Old World will be released on Steam. That probably won't happen until sometime next year, though. So, you know, we'll have at least those other games to talk about, you know, potential wish list things that those games do well that we would like to see in Civ, uh, things that those games do that maybe we don't like, that we don't want Firaxis uh, to do. So it's, it's going to be interesting that now there's, like, actual big-name competition in the market and not just a bunch of uh indie forex uh space empire builders on steam old world isn't out yet at all oh is isn't it out on epic that's not out yet oh okay i thought it was my mistake no i mean literally if it's on epic it's not out oh oh, oh okay <laughs> I, I see what you did there <laughs> Multi-game enemy. This is a thread from... Uh, as soon as the page opens, I will tell you. Uber Epic Zach on r slash civ. And he's talking about how the Maori always ruin his game by taking every uh, planned out island and places that he can't... They want, he wants to settle. And he settles them badly and Atomic Age, they're always nuking them, and he wants to know if there are any other people who have uh, long-term Civ rivalries with AI Civs in their games. I have one uh, with uh, what's his name? Basil. Not Basil. Pedro from Brazil. As soon as you guess your first, uh, as soon as you get your first great person, he hates you for the rest of the game, basically. Yeah, he's always like, he's like you see in every single game I play for some reason, and he's always on the other side of the world, which means by the time I get to him, he's always a pain. But he's got them nasty battleships. Yeah, those dang battleships. If he ever gets to the point of building them, of course. And for me, for me, I definitely have a bit of a hatred for uh, Congo and November, because uh, in a similar vein to you and uh, Brazil, Congo's always on the other side of the map, by the time I discover him, like, in fact he's so far away, I can't exactly get to my religious units over there to convert him before he starts yelling at yeah. me for <laughs> Yeah, the turn after you adopt a religion, he's like, hey, why haven't you spread your religion here yet? Because you're on the other side of the planet, you dumbass. Yeah, it'd be really nice if there was some logic in that uh, that particular AI persona to be like, okay, let's see, I'm a uh, hundred tiles away from them. I should at least give them 50 turns before I start bugging them because two tiles is... Well, actually, no, uh, religious units are 
four movement, right? Four tiles. So, yeah, I should I should give them at least 25 turns to get a missionary over here, because that's the minimum that they could possibly uh, spend getting a missionary there, assuming, you know, terrain and units and cities don't block them. That feels like it should be a quick check. Just like, check if player has met them, check if player has a religion, add 25 turns, then get on the player and go, hey, where's my religion? Yeah, even if it is too hard to, like, check the distance to figure out how many turns it should take, you can at least just put in a buffer. This is going to remind me of the early book in very early Civ 6, where you would meet Gandhi, and then two seconds later, he's like, why don't you have nukes yet? That still happens. Oh, dear. (laughs) Not as often as it used to, but it still does happen. Yeah, a similar one that somebody's uh, who's this kilobot twenty six is in the thread. Wilhelmina, he's like, calm down. I haven't even discovered trading yet. I guess it's the uh, the Civ six equivalent of Would you like a trade agreement with England? He sees a protected friend, all too easy to raid. Oh, that one too. I love that. Yeah, I love that. The best part about that is you know uh, he'll do that, and then I'll train one naval melee unit, or I'll. Maybe go ahead and get Eason Sin or something like that. Get a random caravel and he's like, brilliant navy, best in the world. It always feels like sarcasm. Oh, that's so cute, you have boats now. I don't think I have a Civ 6 rival, but uh, actually in the same vein as these, uh, this Reddit poster, uh, I was annoyed with, um, oh gosh, let's see if I can pronounce his name, Kam- Kamehameha, a uh, Polynesian leader in... Uh, Civ 5, for pretty much the same reason, is he would just show up and plop a city down on my coast in a place where I did not want another city to be, and it was always super annoying. Yeah, pretty, pretty much anyone that has kind of unfet, well, I was going to say unfettered, but easy access to spread around the world and go through the water, yeah, they're kind of annoying. And then what made it, like, worse, like, kind of rubbing salt in the wounds, is he's just so friendly. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's like, oh, I really want to make that city not be there anymore. But at the same time, like, he he, he likes to trade. He likes to buy my stuff. Like, and he, he's just so nice and so friendly. It's so hard to actually declare war on him to get rid of that one city. I want to kill you, but we're so good friends. But I want to kill you, but you give me money and resources. But I want to kill you. Yeah, it's like, I hate you so much, but I love you. I hate Peter, but not that much. Yeah, at least in uh, in Civ Six, if uh, uh, the Maori do that, you at least have loyalty to potentially flip their city, and then once it goes free, you can kill all the units, capture the city, and then raise it, even if you don't want the city there. And there's like no diplomatic cost at all for doing that, unless it's their capital. <laughs> unless they plot their capital within like four tiles of yours, then well, you're like, oh, why? I mean, I, I assume that would still flip from loyalty and it would become a free city and that would just knock Maori out of the game if they didn't have other cities, right? And then there would be no penalty for capturing that free city, would there? No, yeah, but it's more, it's more a case of they plot the city pretty close to yours and kind of ruined your own city planning and city packing. Especially oh, yeah. Especially when they put it on a one-tile island in the middle of your bay. Well, and also just the, the capital with the palace is going to be harder to loyalty flip anyway, at least not until you've like completely surrounded it and you're running bread and circuses and stuff like that. In fact, he, in fact because of the fact he starts with, you know, extra pop and all that, he may even flip you at the start. Yeah, hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah. I think there's also there's also a few other kind of similar mentions in this thread, I think. 
Someone's mentioned Teddy just because of the you know continent bonus. Another one's been definitely mentioned uh, Mapuche because if you're nearly always in a golden age, you're not getting through them. Do you think with that plus ten? Yeah. Oh yeah, Alex. He's like, why you not? Why you no fight? Why you yeah. no fight? Why you no fight? And he's it- a smug son of a. <laughs> Yeah, in both Civ Five, uh, well, in Civ Five, both Alexander and uh, Napoleon were always like the kind of the problematic steamrolling civs for me, where they they would always seem like they're on the other continent, and then they would conquer that entire continent, and then it would it would be the thing where when I got into the second half of the game, they were the the big major superpower that I had to deal with, and I get a little bit of that from Alexander in Civ Six as well because uh, he just loves to conquer things too. Yeah, another person on down, down there has Australia on their permanent to be nuked list, and I was like, "Well, that's not a problem for me because I like playing Australia so much." But I can't imagine. I haven't, I haven't had them turn up in my game, other games, and I'm not playing them that often. But I can see how next and they're annoying because when we have AI Australia in the multiplayer games, like, "Oh, you got to go. I love you, man, but you got to go because you're going to be a pain in my butt." I think there's also another one that some people hate, which is to uh, to see Sandok, and uh, just because of her oh. science game, because yeah, um, I mean, I she also has this other effect with her massive science, doesn't she? Yeah, I think I I don't think I have as much specific one one sieve that I'm going to go, oh, it's you every time. But there's a few th- ones like Sandok that uh, Korea. It's like I have to squish you now because I'm not going to be able to later if I don't do it now. I uh, oh. I have one friend who. Uh hated uh, Dido of Carthage in Civ Five, and that hatred actually carried over into Civ Six, <laughs> even though she behaves totally differently. And is, is in fact is there, a different civilization. I was going to say, is there even any Civ slash leader that's gone through the games that have stayed relatively the same that you could hate between games? Apart from maybe Gandhi. Mm, okay. <laughs> Zulu, because in Civ One they attacked me and run me over, so every time I see the Zulu now, I'm like, mmm side-eyeing them so hard. I'm not necessarily going to attack them right away, but it's like, I don't trust you on my borders. I kind of have a thing against Egypt for beating me in a settler space race. But that was in Civ 4, one of my first games ever, so I don't feel bad about it, but... Still hold a grudge? A little bit. The leader isn't in the game. Head top shit. I don't know if I misheard that, or I just don't know the pronunciation. Properly. <laughs> I don't think that's correct, but I try. I yeah. think we always called her Hattie. Oh, trust me, there's a, there's a friend of pronunciations out there that I kind of almost deliberately get wrong just because it's funnier. But yeah, since we were talking about uh, Korea and science and what's all the other effects that science does. Yeah, moving on from our rival civilization leaders, let's talk a little bit about the, quote, civilization that is a rival for everybody all the time, which is the Barbarians. And there's a thread on Civ Fanatic started by user Tommy's asking, are Barbarian quadremes a long-standing bug no one realizes? And the question they're asking is basically they're pointing out that the Barbarians seem to get quadremes, like way earlier then they should be getting them, and earlier than other civs apparently should have the technology for being able to get them. And they're wondering, or they're speculating that perhaps it was intended for barbarians to have a unique uh, naval raiding unit, uh, similar to how they have that unique horseman unit, or horse archer, or is it a horseman or horse archer? I think it's a horseman. Uh, 
but that for whatever reason that ended up not getting in the game or there was or, or you know there was a, a mistake in the the XMLs or whatever, where they, they give them the wrong unit. So the barbarians have a flavor for building naval raiders uh, or ranged naval units, but they don't have the unique one, so they're just producing quadreams instead. And uh, this thread is quite long, and I haven't read all of it. I don't know if they actually came to a conclusion or not. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Um, but whether or not they did, that is kind of a thing that should probably have fixed. Yeah, because it has become an issue in the multiplayer games more than once, because uh, with the newer settings and the barbs, the old camps become city-states if you leave them long enough, and then they'll spawn up like in the Arctic, and even those ones that are coastal beforehand will spawn at a bunch of the quadrings. And so you can't hold on to it's. it's I think... I don't think anyone's having a city taken, but they've had their city constantly bombarded by them. And then you can't get... An, yeah, and then you, it's hard to get a navy out and going anywhere early in the game if you have one of those coastal camps near you. I was going to say, it was definitely made worse in the patch where they made it so that uh, ranged like archers do less damage to ships. That made it even harder to deal with them in case you accidentally got one. Yeah, because you, you could park a couple of ranged units on your coast and go plunk, 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 but now it's like, nope. It takes, like, what, five or six turns if you only have one archer? Oh, possibly more, I think. And, of course, if they start shooting you back, well, good luck with that. They kill you in, like, three barrages. You kill them in seven or eight. Yeah, it's terrible when you have to use your city to tank damage from a ship. Especially when you don't have the walls yet. Yep. So I think they do finally come to the conclusion that, yes, this is a problem, and yes, the the DLP was correct. I mean, I, I li- kind of like the idea of the barbarians having a a naval raider unit. Like, I feel like that's thematically appropriate. Uh, it's just too bad that it ended up working out the way that it did. If they'd implemented it the way I think they possibly intended to implement it, it might have been c- cool. That makes you think of the barbarian galleon Civ Five, whereas they had a a weaker naval melee units, whereas you had your triremes. I mean, it would have made sense if they had had the galleys from the start of the game that could go around, but then suddenly you come out with a slightly better ship and you can start beating them. But even even during the times when they did spawn the quads, it was like your galleys still couldn't really compete. But yeah, I think they did end up fixing us in a relatively recent patch. Well, it <laughs> says that they fixed it in the April patch, but now they're saying that it's actually just spawning both ships. Oh yeah, it's still spawning. It's still spawning both of them, but it's spawning them now based on the 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 logic of an assault group. As in, it's mostly melee with a with the quad is now counted is counted as the range slash siege part of the assault crew. Yeah, I'm so definitely. Yeah. I'm definitely seeing more barbarian galleys, but I am also still seeing the quadrim show up from time to time. Hmm. It'd be nicer if maybe they just didn't have free shipbuilding, but then, you know, they kind of need it to, you know... Have actually, shit. did the barbs even embark, to be honest? I don't think they do. I don't think the barb land... Yeah, come to think yeah. of it, I don't think I've ever seen that either. Yeah, I don't think the land units ever embark, so I'm not sure why they'd need shipbuilding from the start of the game, then, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know. I do notice it's funny that on uh, page four of this thread, a moderator had to come in and remind people that this is not a thread or forum about humankind. 
So <laughs> humankind hijacked this thread as well. It, it, it's just not going to go away. It's oh, yeah. Like a, it's like a certain random airborne virus thing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe it'll go away. We just don't know it yet. Please? You're right, so we'll go away. Purdy, please, with a cherry and a whatever comes on top of a cherry. Uh, stem? That Whipped cream Whipped and cherry cream? on top. Yeah, that, Whip- were, that version. Yes, yes. There are still quite a bit of like outstanding bugs in Civ Six, and hopefully Firaxis will address them at some point and not just leave us with the April patch and wash their hands of it. Right. I think we had a whole episode topic like a few episodes ago where we went through an exhaustive list of uh, remaining bugs in the game. And this was one of them, I think. So this is a thread by, as soon as the page opens, I will tell you, Jay Kwan, Jay Kuan who uh, points out uh, a one of those nice little uh, exploit slash bug, maybe little cheesy tactics where you can use Amani to get free era score repeatedly. Um, the idea is that you levy the military of the city-state with Amani as a sign, and then you assign her to another city, which causes you to lose suzerainty, and then puts Amani back in the original city-state. And then you become suzerain again, and then levy the military again, and so, then just do this repeatedly. So just to be clear, you're getting the era score for levying the city-state's military, not for becoming suzerain. Yes. Yeah, that seems like it might be the kind of thing where that era score should only happen like one time, maybe per city-state. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds similar to a thing I think I saw a spiffing Brit video doing, but I think that was just pulling Amani in and out of the city-state, not actually levying the army too yeah i wonder if you can also do a similar thing uh by moving our amani in and out of city states that are the suzerain of city states that uh sorry of city states that are the suzerain of a civilization that you're at war with because i think there's also era score for converting a city state from another hostile civs being the suzerain to you being the suzerain and i don't know if you can repeat that for the same city state during the same war so you could potentially maybe also move amani between those city states and rack up era score that way if you do it with multiple city states it's easier because you have to wait five turns between uh switches you can't infinitely spam it but you could still do it multiple times in one era so and then there's a video here that says, no, you can do it repeatedly in only one turn. And I wonder whose video this is. Uh, it doesn't say. I was going to say, I just realized now we're talking about the governor and not the um, and not the hero from Heroes and Legends. Yeah, the governor. Amani, no, it's the, the guy governor. who, po- it's the same guy that posted it. It's, that's his video. Ah, okay. Yeah, it is so worth we- pointing out, though, that the, the cost of levying... Uh, city-state units is usually pretty expensive. I mean, we're talking about hundreds, potentially a thousand gold uh, that you would have to dump into that to do this. So it is, you know, it is potentially exploitative, but it's not something that's like super cheap where it's easy to do. Well, also remember that if you're playing dramatic ages mode, this could be critically important not losing a bunch of cities. 
Yeah. And of course, if you're playing with a Civer leader that has a cheaper uh, city-state levying, I think uh, Gilgamesh and maybe also the Hungarian leader have yeah. a discount towards levying city-states. The Hungarian guy does. Or it's a combat bonus for levied units, something like that. So that you know that could potentially make it a lot more exploitative if it becomes way cheaper to do. We put this in the strategy section because it's only relatively related to strategy, but we probably recommend not using No, it's a little bit... Um, it's one of those things that's maybe dubious as to... Firstly, dubious as to whether it works, but also dubious as to whether it's intended, shall we say. Well, and there's... Yeah. Like, uh, almost all the other era score uh, historic moments are things that can only be triggered once, or like once per civilization or once per city-state. So I would definitely think that that would have been the intent here, and that the fact that you can repeat this multiple times is an oversight by Firaxis. So I'm pretty comfortable in saying that it is probably a bug and is not the intended way for the system to work. But, you know, again, pending another patch from Firaxis, it's the way the game currently works. So in competitive play, uh, if people are using it against you, you got to use it against them. Isn't it, uh, is it, is it still true in, in British law that any action you take, if you take an action, you are expected to uh, intend the logical conclusion. And since Fraxis released the game, they intended all logical conclusions. Well, in that case, the game would have no bugs at all and would be perfect. <laughs> like that's ever going to happen. Like, it, it, like if that was a if that was like a maybe not a criminal offense, but that was an offense that you could be fined for. And surprise, Bethesda still has any money. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if comparing the release of Civilization VI to, like, criminal intent is uh, really appropriate. It was, uh, it was, it was just the, the prototype troll answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that has been podcast episode number 389. Thank you for listening in. Uh, I am the Rusty, the jumped-in, talking about humankind, totally not taking over podcast person. And I was joined by three of your regular co-hosts, Canis Albinus. Bronchitis sucks. Makalua. I like to jump cues. And Mega Bears fan. I like to interrupt cues. And, um, well, we'll get Phil back at some point. The main team. Yeah, he was uh, not here today because his power was out. Power or internet? I thought it was just internet. Maybe it was internet. I don't know. Also, um, ironically enough, he lives in Florida, but the hurricane threat is not on Florida this week. So, (gasps) You mean a week where there's not a hurricane hitting Florida? Well, hurricanes don't hit Florida as often as they seem to be um, supposedly believed to. Like everyone, everyone says Florida gets hit by hurricanes all the time, but usually it's just one or two a year. Well, one of the things that uh, climate change models predict is that we'll actually get fewer hurricanes, but the ones that we get will just be stronger. I can't keep up with the climate change models because they keep changing every year. Ones that you get will just be generated by Florida man.
Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.